Well, let's go ahead and get this show on the road. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Hired.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and prefund your paycheck. They offer legal, accounting, and tax support. And they'll give you $1,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $2,000 instead. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Freelancer Show. This week's episode of The Freelancer Show is brought to you by Earth Class Mail. Earth Class Mail moves your stale mail into the cloud, giving you instant access 24-7 and integrates with the tools and services you use every day. It's crazy that we've moved everything we do for the business over to the digital world, but still need to pick up, sort, and manage physical mail. With Earth Class Mail, you can get all of your mail scanned and accessible online 24-7. You can search your mail, send invoices over to your accounting software, sync important documents into cloud storage, deposit checks, and really just make running your business a whole lot easier. You also get real professional address to share publicly with customers, business partners, and investors. And you'll never need to worry about someone showing up at your door if you run your business from home. Now, I've checked out Earth Class Mail, and I think it's a brilliant solution that's perfect for businesses and independent entrepreneurs of all types. Visit freelancershow.com slash mail, and you'll get your first month of service free when you sign up. That's freelancershow.com slash mail. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 212 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Philip Morgan. Hello, hello. Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Jason Mundock. Did I say that right? Yes, you did. You want to introduce yourself? Yes, sure. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, My name is Jason Mundock. I'm from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is about 70 miles west of Philadelphia. I've been a custom software consultant for the past 12 years or so. I was an in-house developer before that, working for an educational organization here in Pennsylvania. I went out on my own about five years ago. So in between those two gigs was, uh, was working at an IT consulting firm where I was a software developer and a trainer and a project manager. And then about five years ago, I decided to go out on my own. I started out doing some sub work for some friends, uh, and quickly started picking up my own clients, developed my own consulting company. Uh, and ever since then, I've continued to do consulting, but I've also been coaching project management for small dev shops and for individuals, uh, along with publishing some information about that. And uh, speaking at conferences and that sort of thing. And then about a year ago, my friend Molly Connolly, who uh, also comes from the software development world uh, and had also been doing some coaching, sort of had a similar trajectory, right? Similar path. Uh, she and I started a company called Elusive Moose. And the purpose behind Elusive Moose is to help individuals uh, who want to break into consulting or maybe people who have st- who started their own consulting business in the last couple of years. Uh, to really help them find some fulfillment in consulting and build a really fulfilling uh, career around consulting. Um, so we started that last year. Uh, we do an annual two-day conference. Uh, the, the next one is coming up in Chicago, September 7th and 8th. Uh, and we also offer all kinds of resources on our website, elusivemoose.com, along with a membership that allows you to, to have access to some premium content. So that's it in a nutshell. A lot there. Very cool. Yeah, so you've been in business for yourself about as long as I have because I went into business for myself about uh, almost six years ago. So, Yeah, it was 2011 when I was making plans and you know starting to really transition out of a full-time job. And by the beginning of 2012, I was, I was on my own. So I'm about four and a half years in. Yeah, makes sense. So you sent us a lot of information about how to go freelance or how to, you know, how to get into consulting. And a lot of the material you sent us is talking about how how to enjoy your work, which 
really lines up with what I'm about as well. I've been working on some products to help people find better jobs. I've been working on products to help companies line up better with their employees. What is it that you find helps people enjoy their work and why does consulting line up so neatly with that? So my story came out of one of those experiences where the grass is greener on the other side and when you get there you realize that it had really nothing to do with chasing the grass or chasing the green, I guess, in the grass. I was working in, in IT and application development and I, frankly, I was burned out. Uh, so I was just, you know, it was the grind and, and I was working for another guy. I was working for a company that had about 50 employees. And I'm also a musician. I've been a musician my whole life, but I'm very active in my local music scene. I do concert promotion. I was running a blog and a podcast for the local art scene. Uh, and I was very much involved with it. And I was making some money doing it, but uh, not nearly as much money, of course, as I was making in the software world and not nearly enough money to survive. But as I was sort of entering this late 30s, uh, I call it the middle age renaissance uh, more so than <laughs> – right. I was starting to question what I was going to be doing for the next 20, 25 years and I was thinking about passion, right? There's a lot of stuff out there about you know, follow your passion and and do what you're passionate about and all this. And all I could think of as I got up and went to work every day was, boy, I'm not doing that at all. Yet the music business and the, the, the culture and all that sort of thing was – I've been passionate about since I was a kid. So my perspective was if I could just shift away from technology and into uh, the music and the arts world and figure out a way to make money doing that, all my problems would be solved. So I quit my job. I started a company. And at the time, I, I developed a five-year plan so that I could slowly phase out. Like I knew I would have to continue to do software consulting to put – you know, food on the table, right? Eventually, I could taper that off as I figured out ways to make money in the arts world. So I did that for about six months, maybe a year went by. I was going into my second year in business. And I started to realize that I actually was loving what I was doing in the software world. And that I really wasn't loving what I was doing in the music and the arts world. Now, granted, I had a lot more time to do it now than when I had a full time job. But it was backwards. It was, it just wasn't making any sense. I thought, how is this possible that I've, I've opened up this space in my life to do these things I love to do. And yet I'm finding more fulfillment in the work that I was dreading for a few years. Well, it dawned on me that I was looking at it from a, from the wrong perspective. What I was looking at was the actual tasks, right? Like if I'm in the music world, then I'm going to be promoting concerts or playing music or, or doing these things. And that that would make me happy. But in reality, what was going on was I had a passion for something that wasn't a task. It wasn't tact. It wasn't like this specific thing. What I realized was that I actually had a passion for things like solving problems, right? I had a passion for organizing chaos. I had a passion for taking a very, very difficult situation, bringing order to it, and then executing a plan around it and then achieving some success those passions had nothing to do with the software business or the music business, right? It had to do with a much higher level concept. And so uh, what, I what I realized was that by, by launching myself into the, the arts and the music world and trying to make money doing it, I suddenly was finding myself in a, in a position where I had to do a bunch of things that had nothing to do with those passions. I was setting up chairs. You know what I mean? I was... I was hauling equipment. I was, I was performing and I was making money performing, but I was performing. I was playing covers, you know, in a, in a bar that 
were the same thing every day. And so I wasn't challenging myself and I wasn't really executing on the passions that I had. Whereas in the software world, right, now that I was on my own and I was finding my own clients and I was working with the kind of people I love to work with, which come, which is coming soon here. I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. I was executing on those passions. And so I, I'm kind of a reflector. You know, I like to, I like to think about things. I like to sort of figure out why I feel the way I feel or why things work the way they work. And so I spent some time doing some self reflection and I, I discovered that the, the fulfillment that I was actually trying to achieve in my work came from looking at the things I was doing. I was to looking at three dimensions of the things that I was doing. And the three dimensions are what it is that I actually want to do or like to do, which is the passion part, where I do it. So in what industries? Should I be doing these things, right? And then how I do it, which is the culture around what it is that I want to do. So those three dimensions all played a critical role. And if I, if I wasn't aligned with any, with, you know, all three of them, then I wasn't happy. And by happy, of course, I mean, you know, fulfilled, not necessarily in a state of blissful pleasure that I just, I wasn't challenged. I wasn't fulfilled. I didn't feel a sense of satisfaction. So I broke those three things down and I started to look at both of those situations. I just explained the software business and the music business. And I realized the disparities, right? That when I was working full time for a consulting company, even though I was solving problems, I was taking care of the passion part, right? Even though I was in an industry that I do love, which is, which is custom software and working with small businesses, the problem was the culture. The culture wasn't aligned. I was working for somebody else who had a very different culture than I did. You know, we had certain clothes we had to wear. We had to look a certain way. We were doing things that didn't align with me personally. So my culture was out of whack, right? And when I looked at the music business, after I made my shift to, to run my own business, I realized that while the industry was right, right, that I was actually working in, a, in the, the one of the industries that I love, which is music. Um, and the culture was right. I was doing my own thing, right? I was defining myself. I was building my own brand and my own identity. It was the actual tasks, the passion part that was misaligned. So in order for me to make money, my perception was, well, I've got to play these kinds of gigs or I have to put on concerts that I'm not necessarily passionate about. And that was misaligned. So the part where it all came together was when I took my software work and I went out on my own with it and I realized, hey, I can do the things I love to do. I can, I can execute on those passions. I can do it in an industry, which is custom software development that I'm truly aligned with. And I can do it my own way, right? I can value the things that I, that I find important. I can work with the clients that I want to work with. I can do it in a style that I, I feel comfortable with and I feel happy with. And that's why all of a sudden I was super fulfilled was because I was aligned on all three dimensions of, you know, the work that I was doing. There's a lot to dig into there. I think it's interesting, though, that what you thought your passion was turned out not to be your passion. And that's something that I can identify with just from the standpoint of where I came from. Um, I actually recorded the interview that I did with uh, Anders Peterson uh, when I was at MicroConf. But, uh, you know, we talked a lot about the why and, the you know, it, it, can, it for me, it came down to that that difference that you want to make, you know, the what is it? What's that driving factor? And then just keeping that in focus. And, you know, I saw you figure that out, you know, as you kind of unfolded your story. These are the things that really get me excited. These are the things that I really want to spend my time on. These are the things that are going to uh, be the difference for me. And I think a lot of people just miss out on that. I think it also uh, plays nicely into 
what Philip talks about a lot with having that that focus, that niche, is that you know you pick a niche that meets those fulfillment needs. You're you're working in that area where you feel like you're making the difference you want to make. Yeah. And anyway, I read the book Start With Why probably a month ago, and that's really where it got me to the point where I was going, okay, so this is this is why I'm doing this. This is the difference I want to make. And it's funny because you talked about solving problems for clients, and that was ultimately what finally got me to completely give up on the idea of serving clients is because that doesn't serve my passion. That doesn't meet that why for me. And uh, it's it's interesting that it, you know that your reason for doing things, your why, got tied up in that. I'm wondering how people really discover that. How do you help people figure out this is where I want to make the difference, and this is this is the difference I want to make. This is the real reason why I do I'm doing what I'm doing. Well, you know, I, I think that that discovering that is something that takes time and reflection. And my advice to people is is to look at a higher level than the task. Right. I mentioned earlier that I was confusing the task with the passion. So I think there are a couple of myths around passions. The first is that that. So, for example, I might say, well, my passion is playing guitar, but is it really right? Is your passion really about strumming the guitar? Because I can go and strum the guitar. Uh, first, I can sit around my house and strum the guitar. Right. I can I can strum the guitar till I'm blue in the face. I could strum the guitar, say, at a church. Right. If I go to a church, I can volunteer to to do that. But a lot of musicians, when they say my passion is guitar, what their passion really is, is about, you know, changing somebody's life with a song, right? Or about performing in front of thousands of people and getting that right. It's not really the, the task itself, the strumming of the guitar. It's this higher level thing. And so I think that, you know, there's a myth about that. Well, if I only strum the guitar, then I would be satisfied. And the second myth is something that, that has really, it really came to light with me this year. I read an article on the Minimalist's blog. Uh, it was actually a, a, either a guest post or it was referencing another article uh, that, that talked about cultivating your passion and, and that the idea of following or finding or chasing your passion is a myth that what you actually do or need to do is is to develop that passion over time. And so I realized that I had actually done that. Like I didn't wake up when I was, you know, say 25 years old, recently out of college and go, boy, I really love to organize chaos. You know, like that's what I love to do. <laughs> yeah, right. Like that's not what happens, right? Over time though, as I look back and I said, what are the 10 things that I've done in my life that have felt really good? Those 10 things were taking very chaotic situations and organizing them into some, you know, some system. That was what was fulfilling it. And it was, and it was across the board. So yeah, in a few cases, it was really big, hairy, scary software projects where you can't see the end of it. You know, it's a year or two in. And you know that you've just got to keep going and keep working and keep iterating and you'll eventually get to that goal. But but other ones were things like, you know, I, I, I co-produced an experimental theater project with a friend about five years ago. That was just it was crazy. It was this 24 hour plays experience where we brought together 40 people, most of whom didn't know each other. And in 24 hours, produced six plays on stage without books, in costume, you know, full production from eight o'clock. Friday night until eight o'clock Saturday night was the prep time. So the plays had to be written. The plays had to be memorized. The plays had to be, you know, directed and then ultimately performed for an audience of about 125 people. That was incredible. And it was a massive undertaking in terms of organizing chaos. So I think finding that why or finding that passion 
is, in my opinion, is about looking back. If you have some life experience, this obviously might not work for a younger person, but if you have a lot of life experience looking back and saying, you know, what were the common threads of the things that I have found, you know, massively fulfilling? And when I started to see the, the comparison, right, of the metaphor, the analogy, if you will, between a software project and an experimental theater project, I started to go, well, it was because I was in charge and I was managing that. You know, I was delegating to the talented people in all those cases, but I was sort of coaching the process. And that was very fulfilling to me. It's interesting. I mean, some of these ideas that you're talking about, uh, the one in uh, Start With Why, he talks about basically confusing your what with your why. Mm. So, you know, you're talking about programming. Programming is the what and organizing chaos or solving those particular types of problems is your why. I mean, that's really what gets you yeah. going, gets you excited. And then the other one, I think it was out of the book, So Good They Can't Ignore You, where he talks about the idea of following your passion and why that's such terrible advice. And really what it came down to is, you know, he, he talks a bit about the idea that, yeah, you sort of discover your passion as you do the things that you wind up being good at. And so as you develop your talent in those areas and you develop your skills and you learn how those things work, then you start to really understand you really start to understand those areas. You figure out what you like about those things, and that's how your passion develops around them. So it's not a, oh, well, I'm a music person, and so I automatically am passionate about music. Instead, it's uh, it's more along the lines of I've practiced this a lot, and there are certain aspects of what I'm doing with the music that really pay off. Right. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. So we've talked a lot about sort of the reasons why you might want to go into consulting, but as anyone who's done that knows, there's a whole lot more to it than just wanting to do it and understanding what the payoffs are going to be for you as you serve clients or start your own business or whatever. And so I'm curious, how do you how do you advise people who are then going, okay, well, I think I can get that higher level of fulfillment or I can achieve my why or purpose better by going into consulting? How do you help people align those things so that they don't just wind up creating another uh, job sure. where they have clients instead of a boss? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. One of the things that we're trying to do at Elusive Moose is to help people decide if consulting is actually the right fit or what role within a consulting uh, opportunity is the right fit. Because I'm sure you guys know that you know you can work in in consulting if you're not a solo consultant or a sole proprietor. If you're working for, say, a small firm, there are a variety of roles that you can play within that firm. If you're solo, you pretty much, you know, you pretty much have to do it all. You can, of course, emphasize certain roles uh, or pay more attention to certain roles, and that will affect your business proportionately. But you know, some of the articles that we've written at Elusive Moose are about the attributes of certain roles and what we see as attributes to make you successful. Uh, so, a good example of that is project management. I've coached a number of small shops on implementing some project management processes done some training workshops and then done some coaching and tried to really help these shops. And I'm talking like maybe five to 10 employees, right? Uh, help them implement these processes. And sometimes I'm brought in because they've hired a new project manager. And sometimes I'm brought in because they're the kind of shop where everybody's kind of doing their own thing, right? And they, they need to align on a process. And what I've discovered is, is that not everybody is really cut out to play that role. And so what I'm trying to do through Elusive Moose is help people recognize whether or not it's a good fit and be pretty frank about what it takes to play some of these roles. 
So in the case of project management, there are a few attributes that I find to be super important to be a great project manager. The first one is confidence, right? So you need to you need to have confidence in your process. You need to have confidence in your ability to communicate. You need to have confidence in your team so that when you walk into a, a situation with a client, you can dominate you know, that initial conversation and then and you have the confidence to lead that team, both sides, not just your your side of the uh, of the project, but all sides of the project. Um, that's an attribute that I find to be extremely important. And if I'm talking to somebody who's new at project management and they're meek or they're, they're timid or they're a little bit unsure of whether or not they are even a good fit for that role, they're kind of afraid, then I have to question whether or not they're a good fit for that job. And so we're trying to, you know, we're trying to share information about what we think the attributes are of these various roles to see if, if consulting is really cut out for you. Uh, you know, my partner Molly wrote, I wrote a good piece um, not long ago about conflict, right? And how the very nature of consulting is it, it involves conflict. We wouldn't be called in if everything was running smoothly or if there wasn't some problem to be solved. And so uh, if you're a person who really you know, recoils away from conflict, you're getting into a business that is rooted in conflict. It's centered around it. But if you're the kind of person that can handle it and embrace it, um, and you don't get worked up about it and can sort of calmly move through through a, a conflict situation, then, well, then you're probably a good fit. Jason, do you find certain personalities more successful in consulting or is it really just a, kind of a matter of finding the right fit? I think it's a matter of finding the right fit within consulting itself. I've focused a lot on project management over the years and I definitely see certain personality types be much more successful in that specific role, right? So I can speak to that. Mm-hmm. I mentioned confidence. I think that you need to be organized, right? You need to be the kind of person who who enjoys a zero inbox, the kind of person who enjoys keeping their workspace and their, their life organized. And I think that you, for a project manager, uh, there's a sense of detachment that plays a, a big role in it. And detachment would be this idea of not taking things personally. So if a client is upset with the, the way things are going or if, or if a team member is upset with the way things are going and they lash out about it in some way, that you as a project manager can keep your cool and not take that personally or not think that you're doing a bad job because somebody's not happy. So those, those are kind of the attributes that I work with around deciding whether or not I feel that somebody's a good, a good fit specifically. But I, I believe that, that within consulting itself, as long as you can recognize those strengths and weaknesses and play to the strengths, you can still be really successful and not not necessarily fall into one specific category or type of person. What about roles other than project manager? I mean, you know, we, we all do some level of like tech support or writing software or uh, building up specifications or just having a vision for where the company's going or, you know, all kinds of different other hats that you wear, DevOps. I feel like you've kind of described the person who would make a good consultant in project management, but I also feel like some of these other areas are well-suited for other personality types. And so people can find their niche. People can find that place where they really fit. And and I'm curious, you know, how do you do that? You know, do you have kind of this outline for each other position that uh, people may find themselves in as a consultant? Or is there a process that people can go through to say, I'm kind of this personality, I'm good at these kinds of things, and therefore I would make a great consultant as a developer or DevOps or CEO or something else? That's a fantastic idea. 
I love that. So no, I don't have anything specifically laid out for all of these various roles. You know, I think that as a manager and as a project manager, I was also in a position where I was managing developers and some other team members, testers and things of that nature, you know, that I had to make those kinds of decisions. Uh, and I had to help and coach those those various roles or those various people within those various roles. And so I was doing it sort of on the fly, right, during performance reviews or during uh, various exercises in this company. But I think it would be great. Now, project management is something that I've had a lot of experience in, so I do have that sort of mapped out to say, here you go. You know what I mean? Like, let's start with these three things and see how you line up with them. But I think it'd be a fantastic idea to to break down the various roles and kind of map out attributes in the same way. But I haven't done it yet. I better get on it. Maybe this <laughs> I'm good at creating work for other people. <laughs> we'll give you a list of your homework at the end of the show. Thank you. <laughs> One of the interesting things about being self-employed for me was sort of recognizing these self-defeating patterns in myself that take a long time to show up and kind of manifest. Like, you know, again, I, this is not specific to consulting, but just uh, self-employment in general. Like, I feel like you have to have a tolerance for delayed gratification. Like, you have to be able to do things and then do them again and keep doing them for quite a while before you see results sometimes. And I'm wondering if, if Jason, if you see other kind of patterns that people uh, that are in the people you work with that are sort of those self-defeating patterns that they can modify once they become aware of them? Well, I'm not sure if this necessarily qualifies as a self-defeating attribute, but I think it's one of those kind of obvious moments um, where when I'm coaching a, a team, I spend a lot of time emphasizing the importance of understanding process, right? of understanding how it is you do things. Uh, because I think what we do, well, maybe this is one of those self-defeating <laughs> traits now that I'm thinking about it. When we go out on our own, we don't know how to do it all, right? We only know how to do the things that we've been exposed to. Mm-hmm. And we have to, we have to start figuring out all of the other aspects. Like, for example, when I worked for a larger company, I never sent an invoice because we had an accounting department. So, it just wasn't my responsibility. And so when I sent my first invoice as a, as a solo consultant, you know, it was kind of scary. I was like, am I doing this right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> What's going to happen now? And so yet I was perfectly fine going out and selling a project. I was perfectly fine executing the project, all of that stuff. I just had never sent an invoice. And so going back to my point about process, is that I encourage everybody to, even if it's very, it's sort of like a, a, it's sort of like business planning, right? When you go talk to your first small business coach or you go to a workshop, the first thing you say is you gotta have a plan. It doesn't matter if it's one page. You know, you gotta have a plan. I say the same thing about process. And if, if you take nothing else away from one of my training workshops around project management, it is take the elements of project management and make sure you can articulate in a couple of senses how you do it. And if you've got a team, Make sure that everybody is articulating it the same way, right? With, with some exceptions, of course, but mm-hmm. you know, you don't want this guy, uh, selling a project or billing a project time and materials and this guy over here asking for money up front or this guy, you know what I mean? Like you wouldn't do that when it comes to billing. So why would you do that when it comes to project management? You know, have a process and figure out what that process is. And I think that what people do is they jump into this. 
like you said, you know, self or uh, delayed gratification. They jump into this uh, idea of starting their business and having their company and just fake their way through big parts of the company and yeah. or of, you know, of the jobs and then and then maybe a couple of years later if they're successful they've figured it out but i say hey articulate it even if you're wrong you know at first like pick away and and write it down and, and have a process for it mm. an example i think of yeah. of a trait that i think is hard for people to come to terms with when they first go out on their own is taking full responsibility for everything Meaning if somebody's late with an invoice, right, with payment on an invoice, that you are the one who actually has to pick up the phone and call them. And if you avoid that, if you if you sort of run from it because you've never had to deal with it and you're a little bit afraid of calling somebody out on that, then you're going to suffer. Right? You have to take ownership of the entire process and you have to have the confidence and the courage, I guess, to to do things that are really uncomfortable. I've never uh, suffered from that. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, are you, what are you talking about, Jason? <laughs> no idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's so easy to write. It's like, well, I don't want to do that, so I'll put it off. Or you get to the point where you're just like, well, you know, I, I don't want to fight with them. Or, you know, and it's like, you know, most people are reasonable. You call them up. Hey, we agreed that I'd be paid by now and you haven't paid me. Most people are like, oh, yeah. You know, but, right. but it's just getting over that. Yeah. Nine times out of 10, it's just the invoice got lost or, you know, they just forgot to submit it to accounting or whatever. Yeah. Right. And it's just a little nudge and they actually thank you. I mean, that's in my experience. Oh, hey, thanks for the nudge. I totally thought I sent that over, but I went on vacation. Yeah. Or I, I will say it's a little off topic, but sometimes you can just change, you know, change the rules. Basically, uh, you don't like collecting invoices after the fact. You can uh, insist on being paid up front. Not that it's just that easy, but, you know, getting back to the idea of being a sort of small consultancy or solo consultant, you have a lot of flexibility. So I guess we can't talk about personality shortcomings and, uh, you know, self-defeating patterns without also mentioning that sometimes you can just kind of route around those problems, right? Absolutely. I mean, and that's the trade-off is that you get, you have the flexibility that you didn't have before. Yeah, I have a case in point on that and this is kind of a recent development with the sponsorships for the shows so i do collect the sponsorships up front but sometimes people are a little bit slow to pay because it's a lot of money for a quarter and that's the way that i've been working sponsors for the last year or so is i've been encouraging people to sign up for a quarter at a time well i was talking to somebody else and they they mentioned that the way that they do it for their clients they actually uh, have clients who are podcasters and they help the podcasters find their sponsors and he said, well, what we do is we do it per episode, and then we just have a minimum number of episodes they have to purchase, and the episodes don't go live until we've paid. And that just made a ton more sense to me. So now it's not this huge number you know, that they have to pull out of their bank account, but right. it can be a smaller number that they pull out every few weeks or however they want to do it as they buy a package of four or five episodes at a time. And so I'm making that switch right now. The other thing that that's done is, it's brought the price range down into within the budget of a few other people who couldn't afford an entire quarter, you know? And so by changing just certain aspects of the business, changing the rules, as Philip put it, it actually solved a number of problems for me. And it's like, yeah, you know, we're not gonna, we're not going to do any episodes because there's not a hard start to the quarter. And so if you pay late into the quarter, then you just miss out on those episodes. 
Instead, it's, well, you know, you haven't paid for those spots, so you don't, you haven't reserved them yet. Gotcha. Well, that's a great idea. Right. And so it just, it just changes the conversation. It's okay. Well, you want those spots? Well, I can't hold them for you until you've paid me. And it doesn't make the conversation any more awkward. It's just a different way of doing things and a different conversation you wind up having. Yeah, something that sort of ties together a few things we talked about is the idea that you can shift your business, right? This has to do a lot with, with that third dimension of fulfillment I was talking about earlier, which is culture, is that you have the power to shift your business to play to your strengths instead of your weaknesses. So earlier when, you, when we were talking about, wow, you know, are there other roles that someone could play who might not carry those characteristics? That, that Well, sure, your business can be a little bit heavier on one particular area of consulting than another, even within, say, software development, right? Like if you get the right kind of client who's just sort of a recurring, ongoing maintenance client, then you don't have to worry that much about sales. You still have to worry about sales, but you're not out there doing sales all the time, right? Like in, if, if you if you like the new project, if you like the new customer and you like to work, it, work with people uh, or new challenges, then you're out there selling. You better be good at selling. But if you would rather not do as much selling, then then you need to look for the kind of client who wants to kind of bring you in almost as a subcontractor, right? And say, well, we need ten or fifteen hours a week, and that's that's long term. So you know, you you have the power to play to the strengths and 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 play to the attributes that you really excel in, and you can make the change kind of on a dime. Right. There's a little bit of transition there, but you can make changes as you go. And I think that's fantastic. I think that's one of the beauties and the benefits of, of going out on your own and doing it your own way. Jason, what do you think about changing culture? I mean, maybe that's easier with a solo outfit, but if you've got a small team and you're not really happy with your with how the culture is and you're in a leadership position, do you see people be successful changing that? And and if so, how do they how do they pull it off? Well, that's a, that's a tough one. I, I've seen more people who, who lose staff as a result of it. Uh huh. I guess that's one uh, way to change the culture, right? Is yes. Say, this is the new deal and you can leave if you don't like it. Right. And, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know how much I would advise on that, mm-hmm. but it's certainly a method. The company that I had worked for, the consulting company I'd worked for, our PM processes were kind of a mess. Uh, about 10 or 12 years ago. I shouldn't say they were a mess. They just were, were kind of not there. Uh, you know, everybody was sort of doing their own thing and we were growing. We were moving into that middle ground where we had 10 or 12 people working in app dev rather than four. And we brought in a consultant who, who taught us a methodology and then it was time to implement that methodology. And within six months, there were two of us left. You know, we had maybe eight at the time uh, getting ready to grow. There were two of us left. Everybody, they just, people just quit. They were like, I don't like that. And they left. It took time, you know, and it wasn't like everybody walked in the next day and said, I quit. But eventually they weren't happy with change and, and we, we hired as they quit. And the, the great part about that culture shift was that when we brought them in during the interview process and the ramp up process, it was like, well, this is the process. This is the methodology we use. And so they didn't know any better. So, yeah, I definitely think that that's an approach. Uh, and it was very successful in that case, just because, it, don't, don't get me wrong, it hurt for a while. Yeah. Until um, we got through the, you know, over the hump and through that transition period. But in the end, we had a, uh, we had a team that was sold on the new culture. So that's certainly one way to do it. I think another way you could do it, and I don't have a lot of experience in this, so I'll sort of speak out of, uh, just out of what I would project. And that is, just do it slowly over time, right? 
slowly over time and loosen things up a little bit or make small incremental changes. Um, and I think a critical piece is, is buy-in from the team and help letting people participate in that process rather than a top-down, you know, this is the way we're going to do it. Um, I've had some pretty out there friends in terms of guys who've owned small companies and, and did things that weren't, weren't terribly conventional. Like this one guy worked on a recliner most of the day. It was just, you know, so his, his, his business was very, very casual. Um, and his team was very, very casual, but he worked mostly with junior talent. And so he had sort of a revolving door culture where he'd bring these, these young kids in, train them up. They'd stick around for a couple of years and then they would move on and he'd pay them proportionately, you know, but he kept it very casual. And then I've, I've worked with other teams and have known and had friends who had teams that were very much the opposite. They're very senior level, very focused. And, um, you know, those, those differences in culture are dramatic and they're, uh, I think they're important that everybody's just at the end of the day are just aligned with it or, or they're going to move on, you know. It's funny you, that you're talking about this because, uh, I have people ask me all the time, well, we're trying to hire senior developers and we're just not having any luck finding the right people or finding any seniors. And, you know, I find that senior developer isn't that meaningful a distinction, to be honest. But it's like, well, what do you really want? You know, and so you're talking about culture and you're talking about fulfillment and you're talking about all these things that I think are ultimately the right things to be talking about when you're talking about who do I bring in to solve problems and so when I talk to companies and they're saying, well, we want to hire senior developers. In fact, I'm actually putting together a product on this as well. You know, I start talking to them and I'm like, well, who do you really want to hire? And, you know, what kind of impact do you really want them to have? And once you can articulate those cultural differences to people, uh, that's when it really starts to make a difference. And I found that with a lot of senior developers, because there are so many options for them as far as places to go, mm -hmm. they're looking for those differentiators anyway. Oh, that's interesting. So they're what, looking for a place that they want to work, that they're happy to work, that they're fulfilled at work, that, you know. What are some of the things that you see as a differentiator? Like, what are some of those specifics around a culture? So some of the things are, for example, some companies really value the fact that every everybody kind of gets together after work and hangs out. And, sure. And other cultures, you know, it's more about how we behave at work. And so I've worked at companies where... Um, the behavior at work was, you know, we work closely together where, you know, we have the conversations we have to have in order to get the work done. Um, we all kind of go to lunch together during the lunch break. Sometimes there are company meetings or company lunches or company events, you know, during the work day, but after work, everybody just kind of goes home and does their own thing. I worked at mm -hmm. one company that who your friends were, were who you like to play garage band with. And so... You know, it's different for every company, and some people really like that uh, friendly, approachable, you know, whatever culture where it's, you know, everything's just kind of by the seat of your pants. And others like the really regimented, everybody shows up at the same time and leaves at the same time and mm -hmm, works mm -hmm. on the same stuff at the same time. And, you know, everything's managed in a particular way, and everybody knows what they're supposed to be doing all the time. And, you know, and so those are different, those are different cultural things. And, and people, after they've worked a few jobs, they kind of get an idea of, you know, which ones they fit into. I, I even found this as, as a freelancer where I figured out that augmenting existing teams really wasn't my deal. And that, you know, inevitably there were major problems that they were expecting to hire consultants in as developers that they were hoping that somebody would come in and actually solve. And I didn't want to solve those problems. I just wanted to get in and write interesting code. 
Right. But at the same time, I also figured out that, you know, people who are building a new product or have an interesting existing product and need somebody to come in and kind of be the expert and be a sort of CTO or technical advisor were the roles that I really enjoyed. And so it was a matter of empowerment and the the types of problems I was solving that, that really made the difference for me as a consultant. Whereas other people I know, they've been a consultant for the same company on the same team for five, ten years. And that's kind of what they do. So they're still a consultant, but they're, you know, they look a whole lot more like an employee on a team that's writing code. And that's their shtick. And, and honestly, I did that a couple of times and I hated it. Right. And right. So, and that's, that's the difference between playing to the strength of the person. Yep. But, but what that boils down to is, is that as you go into consulting, it's funny. I have people talk to me and they're like, well, I thought about going into consulting, but I just don't even know what I would do. And I'm just like, well, just do what you've been doing if you like it. And then you just charge people. You know, the difference <laughs> right. is you write an invoice for your paycheck instead of just collecting it. Right. And I mean, it that that is slightly oversimplified, but ultimately not a ton. You have to do a little bit more legwork to go find those contracts. But yeah, it's it's just it's interesting how much of that really comes through. And it, I've also found that freelancers are a lot more sensitive to those kinds of things than people who are out there looking for full time jobs. But the people who have been in the industry for a long time and know that they are in demand, they'll totally pick and choose over companies that give them better options that better fit them as yeah. opposed to some of the other options that are out there. So anyway, it's just it's, it's interesting to have the conversations and see, okay, what do you value? What do you care about? What do you want? And some people, they, they don't want that much autonomy. And so they don't want to be a consultant. And other people like having the option of saying, okay, well, I'm just going to work this contract until I decide I'm done with it. And then I'm going to go work another contract. So right. anyway, it's, it's really, really fascinating just to see how it works out. But yeah, I, I wind up talking to a lot of people and it's, you, you get as many perspectives on this as you do people. No doubt. No doubt. I think, uh, you know, going back to the beginning of this conversation where identifying for yourself, what you, it is that you want to do, you know, identifying for yourself, what that passion is, really is all about, or those passions, I should say, because there's certainly more than one. Um, and then finding the industry in which to work and then doing it in a way that, that you're aligned with through the culture, you line all three of those up and you're, you know, you got a pretty good shot of being satisfied every day. Jason, can we drill into passion a little more? Absolutely. I feel like HR departments around the globe have done that word a great disservice by using it <laughs> as a sort of code word for, I don't know, you don't have good boundaries, you'll <laughs> overwork. You know, you know what I'm talking about, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. How do you see it? And, you know, how can people sort of know if what they're feeling is, is legitimately something they, they could call passion? I start with the, the idea of flow. You guys, I'm sure, are familiar with flow. Mm -hmm. It's the it's the timelessness, right? It's the it's looking up and realizing that hours have gone by, that you completely lost yourself in something. You didn't have the urge to go check the news feed. You didn't have the urge to to get up and go get another cup of coffee, right? You, in fact, sometimes when I'm really in it. I've got the full cup of coffee that is now cold <laughs> sitting next to me on the desk. And I say, oh, I don't want to put that in the microwave. I guess I have to brew another pot, you know. So that's to me, that's a, a pointer of, of something that I'm passionate about, the kind of work. As I mentioned earlier, 
I think looking back over your experiences and deciding when you were in those moments of flow, deciding when you walked away from a project or a task or some, you know, thing that you were involved in and you say, wow, like that was a moment that I'll never forget helps identify those things that you should be doing. And I try to look at them at, I, I, I really wish I could articulate this in a way that, that made it really easy for me to explain it. I always feel like I'm, I'm kind of mumble around when I talk about a passion being a higher level concept than something that you do. Because a passion to me is, it's not tied to a specific task. It's a, it's a, see, I, here I am it, giving you a great example of kind of, kind of mumbling around. Um, but you know, I, when think, I, I think you're not alone. I think it's, it's something that a lot of people are like, well, you know, I see, I, I see people write in a way that makes me think they get up and go to work and start foaming at the mouth. They're just so jacked up and enthusiastic about it. Right. And I, I don't think that's really what passion is. I think that's something else. I don't know what to call it, but that's not passion. So uh, I think you're not alone in, I think all of us kind of are like, well, what is it exactly? Yeah, like I know what I, I know what I'm passionate about. And I'll reiterate that I'm passionate about bringing order from chaos. I'm passionate about big, scary projects that, that are hard to see the end and achieving them. Right. Like I like that. I like to take on something that feels impossible and then working really hard over a long period of time to make it possible. I like to be organized. Right. I'm that person. I'm not nuts about it. I'm not insane, but, but I find satisfaction in zeroing out the inbox and putting things where they belong. So those are three examples of things that I'm passionate about, but I don't know how to explain <laughs> the word passion, <laughs> you know? Well, I think it's valuable to point out that it's maybe not that kind of red hot intensity that people think it is that the, and, and that a sort of lower grade experience of just something being interesting over time and compelling in a certain way. It's like a compelling challenge and maybe not every day you're up to it, but most days you are. Uh, maybe that's more what it's about. And the reason I bring this up is I just, I hate, I hate it when people dismiss a really viable something that could be a good fit for them or could be a good niche for them to look into because it doesn't seem like red hot exciting, you know? Yeah. And I just don't know anybody who can sustain that like red hot level of frothy excitement for three or five years anyway. <laughs> that just doesn't no, you, seem realistic to me. You raise some really good points. I mean, I think we have a perception in our Facebook world that, you know, hanging off the side of a mountain, right, is like an example of a right. legitimate passion or something that's dangerous physically or mentally or whatever. But no, you're right. I, I Like mine, mine are not very sexy at all. You know, I like to organize stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel good about cleaning out the garage and making it, you know, and if you looked at my garage right now, you'd say, yeah, you're not really passionate about that, but I'm just waiting for it to get so mad <laughs> that, uh, that it's going to feel even better. But yeah, I, I think, uh, I think you're right that dismissing a, something that is not real sexy and real just sort of, wow, dismissing that is, is terrible. What could cause you to pass up some incredible opportunities? 
I know. Like the flip side, of course, is how long do you investigate something mm. before you kind of call it and say, you know, this, this just doesn't have what it takes to hold my interest for the long term or whatever. And maybe that's more a bigger question that we can answer in this show. But that, that, that that's certainly the flip side. Yeah, but the the other thing is is uh, so the episode that I recorded just before this, we talked to Jameis Buck, who's a Ruby developer, about his book about mazes, and you know he played with mazes for a few years and he was pretty passionate about it, and then eventually he moved on to something else. So I'm not even convinced that your passion has to stay static over two, three, four, five years. I mean, I was pretty passionate about consulting when I started consulting, but at this point. You know, I've figured out that's not my passion anymore. My passion is making a difference for people through the podcasts and, and encouraging people to go make the difference that they want to make. Yeah, that's and, great. And, you know, and so that's that's kind of my big why. That's my big passion at this point. And in another five years, you know, maybe I'll be on to something else or maybe I'll have the same why but a different how or a different mm. what that I'm doing. And, you know, so your passion, I mean, I'm passionate about podcasting, but... You know, maybe in another few years, I'm going to be passionate about making YouTube videos or passionate about, uh, you know, traveling the world and speaking to people or passionate about something else while I still have that same core meaning to what I'm doing. So I don't yeah. think it has to stay the same. No, no, I agree. And I, I, I think maybe the meaning is more aligned with the passion than, than the platform. Like I think, I think being interested in a technology is, is, is awesome and it's certainly a, a channel. Uh, I know plenty of developers that have that have switched, you know, technical platforms just because they got bored. Trainers. But they still, yeah, <laughs> they still loved it. They still love to do the projects. But um, yeah, I, I should add that I, I agree completely that uh, you know, like the particular configuration of all the pieces of what it is you do can can and probably should shift over time sure. to keep it interesting. All right. Well, I'm I'm kind of under some time constraints, so I'm going to push us toward picks. Uh, but okay. is there any major aspect of this that we haven't hit yet? No. Yeah, I, I got most of my questions uh, asked. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks then. Philip, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I have a pick that is going to blow people away. Um, <laughs> a colleague of mine, uh, David Trejo, uh, just published a website called engineerworth.com. And it's a, it's, it's a really interesting sort of, I mean, it's basically a calculator you can use to take the salary you're paying an engineer, uh, who would be working for you and derive a bunch of interesting sort of by, byproducts is not the right word for it, but just some important sort of metrics that you can use to understand whether you're going to get a return on investment on this engineer. Not that it's exactly that simple, but. It's a really well done web page with some JavaScript code that gives you a calculator. So you put in a salary, gives you fully loaded cost, you know, a sort of target ROI, and then does it derives some really interesting sort of secondary numbers like, you know, how much is testing going to cost you and how much do meetings cost you <laughs> and stuff like that. So, um, I think that not for everybody, but at least for a subset of the listeners, they're going to find this really interesting because it helps you start to quantify things like salary. So that's engineerworth.com. And I think that's, that's my only pick for this week. Awesome. It's funny because I've been kind of racking my brain as to what I want to pick this week. And so I'm going to pick something that's a little bit different. Uh, last week, I was out in Oklahoma 
And uh, so I have a few picks related to that. The first one, though, is just that when we got out to the place that we were going to stay, it was uh, private property. My brother-in-law has some friends who have access to it. So, you know, we paid some minimal fee to stay there. And uh, they had a private lake and they had a place where they had uh, basically come in and pulled some fill dirt out. And so we had a very nice place to shoot guns. I pulled the kids around uh, on a tube behind a jet ski for a while, just went hiking, uh, got to sleep in a bit. But I think the the thing that was the most important about that place was that there was no cell service and no internet service. And so for three or four days, I was completely cut off from the online world, uh, completely cut off from the people that helped me run things around here for devchat.tv. And I have to say that it was really nice just to not worry about it. I mean, I think I had it one or two texts come through while I was at it, uh, while I was out there, because, you know, it would randomly connect to the really weak signal it could get. And anyway, it was really nice. So um, we talked a few weeks ago to uh, Sherry Walling about retreats, and I think I'm going to try and duplicate that when I, when I go out there. Um, I was also looking at going out to Park City for my retreat, and when we were driving through Colorado, we drove through on I-70, through the big canyon there between Denver and Utah. And so I'm seriously considering going out to Vail or something like that out there where it's a little more remote and, you know, just it just feels a little bit more distant from, from the main concerns that I have going on here, uh, though it is a little bit longer drive. And finally, the last pick I have is an app on my phone called Glimpse. That's Glimpse with a Y, G-L-Y-M-P-S-E. And... Uh, it, what it does is you can send a glimpse to somebody else. So uh, my dad knew I was on my way back to Utah and was concerned. My wife and I actually wound up coming back different days. She came back with her mom, and her dad actually followed me home. And uh, so I would send glimpses to, to my wife and my dad. And what that did is it, it told them where I was and how fast I was going and all that stuff. And so um, if my wife ever wanted to know how things were going, then she could just look at it and then, you know, she didn't notice that we stopped a couple times. So she called, Oh, are you having dinner? Blah, blah, blah. And it was really nice. So if you're on your way to someone or to something, or you just want to let folks know where you are as you travel, then glimpse is pretty darn cool. Jason, what are your picks? I'm kind of new to this. So hopefully these will, uh, these will serve the purpose. Uh, when I was thinking about picks, uh, I, I tried to think of something that had had a huge impact on me making a decision to become a consultant and some that I've kept up over the years. And it's the one thing that came to mind is the minimalists blog. Uh, so the minimalists.com, uh, run by two guys, uh, who quit the corporate world and became minimalists, uh, about five or six years ago. I started reading them the year that I, that I decided to go out on my own. And it has nothing to do with consulting, nothing to do with software or any of the work that I was doing. And in fact, I really have zero interest in actually becoming a minimalist. But um, I just found that the way they wrote and the excitement that they had about what they were doing and sort of just letting you peek behind the curtain of their journey was really big uh, for me. It was very inspiring for me. And so I've kept up with them a little bit less so over the years. Uh, I was really a diehard fan from about 2011 to about 2014. And they really just – I find their, their their writing to be very, very compelling and it's it, – it, talks about a lot of the important things in life. Um, of course, they talk about it in terms of uh, material 
objects and chasing money and sort and what's wrong with that. Um, but I translate a lot of that to just the kind of things I do. So, uh, I recommend it. The minimalists.com. They do a podcast now. Um, they've written a few books since then and, um, just some great stuff to check out. And, uh, the other thing that, uh, I also tried to think of something that had a, a kind of a big impact on one of my businesses and, um, Jeff Walker's product launch formula, I think was, the one thing that um, that we've used with Elusive Moose, it really had a big impact. And it, I don't, have you guys heard of that? Uh, the book yeah, I have the or book. the yeah? Okay, I think it's um, it was one of those things that I found or someone recommended, and I checked it out. You know, it's a little skeptical. You know, like ah, yeah, this seems like it might work. And so we tried it out when we launched our membership website. Uh, we used the product launch formula and. We admittedly were just testing things and experimenting with things, and I knew that I wouldn't know really how to do it well at first, uh, but uh, it, it turned out to be uh, very successful, and it turned out to be um, the one thing that we've done in launching this new company uh, that I look back on now and I go, yep, I'm definitely going to be using that as we start to develop our, our digital product. So if anybody out there hasn't heard of it, it's a, it's a methodology for launching online products. It's anything from a book to full-on courses that they offer uh, through the website productlaunchformula.com. And I just – I found it to be super, super helpful for our business. Awesome. Now, if people want to follow up with you, see what you're doing, where do they go for that? You can find me at elusivemoose.com. Uh, my email address is jason at elusivemoose.com. And we do a podcast that comes out every Wednesday uh, talking about all things around being a consultant. Uh, we have a blog there uh, as well uh, where we publish articles. And um, most importantly right now, uh, if you're in and around the Chicago or even if you're not in and around the Chicago area and feel like visiting Chicago in a beautiful time of the year in September, um, our second Find Your Moose conference is coming up uh, two days. Um, it's a Wednesday and a Thursday. Uh, somebody you know, Jonathan Stark, is one of our speakers this year. And Jonathan was a speaker last year. Uh, had a great session on finding your target, pigeonholing yourself so that you uh, can go after the clients you want. Um, and that information about the conference can be found at findyourmoose.com. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. Thank you for coming. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. All right. We'll catch you everyone next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.